We're continuing our look at Nehemiah. We're going to um, jump on a chapter. For those of you who are keen, you may have noticed that we have emitted chapter 7, a big uh, list of names. We're not going to totally overlook the list of names, but we are going to jump on to the start of the story of, of chapter 8. If, if this book were a secular book, it would have finished last week as the walls were finished in 52 days the walls were finished building. If this were a secular story, it would have finished there. And the ending would have been something like it would have been dependent on this, the strength of, you know, the, the man's vision and the strength of the walls. Or, heaven forbid, if Hollywood got hold of this story, it would have been some dramatic battle scene or something like that, wouldn't it? And, and it would have, the story would have been one, one man's vision to build, this is my, America, this is my voiceover voice, one man's vision to, to restore a people, to reclaim a city, and then I've, I've run out of Americanisms. And, and, and at the end, there might be like a, some firework display or you know, a wonderful finale. And it would depend on the vision of the man and the strength of the walls. But this isn't a story about a man rebuilding a wall. This is a story about God restoring a people. So it doesn't end at chapter 6. In fact, actually, this story is really just getting going. It's just getting interesting. It's not the culmination of everything. It's the start of everything. Verse 1 says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. It must have been some scene, that scene. Can you imagine it outside the water gate? I've seen pictures of Jerusalem, and it looks a bit like York to me, kind of cramped and old. York's, why have I said that? York's a beautiful place, but in, in, a, in the nicest possible way, it's cramped and it's small. That's what I'm trying to say. And we've got this list in chapter 7 of 40,000 plus people who all come together. They come together. And it's interesting, isn't it? The priests don't summon this big crowd of people. The people come together and the people say, we need the word. Bring out the word. It's just a coincidence. I'm sure it is. But God's word sometimes really interesting like this. They stand at the water gate, which is where you'd go for a drink, I guess. But here we have the story of 40,000 very thirsty people. I'm sure we're going to read that they stood for a long time and it was out in the sun. I'm sure they were really thirsty. But actually, they were thirsting for something much more than that, weren't they? Israel had an interesting relationship with the word. And I think I'd just like to explore, take you back through a few of these verses just to, um, to, just to put it in its right context because we, we're quite distant from, from the children of Israel and their relationship with the word. Their relationship with the word was, was fundamental to their very lives, to, to where they were going to live, to their health, to their children. Just listen to a few of these Old Testament references. Exodus 20, verse 12. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You'll know the first bit, and if you're like me, you would have struggled like mad with it. Honor your father and mother. So that, did you know there was a so that on the commandments? Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's interesting, isn't it? These Ten Commandments with a really literal consequence that connects the people with God's word in a really literal way. Deuteronomy 440, keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you 
and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land your Lord gives you for all time. Deuteronomy 6, I think this is called the Shammai or something like that. I think you'll find often that, that Jewish children will know the first five books of the, of the Old Testament off by heart. And if they don't know the first five books of the Old Testament off by heart, they will know this bit off by heart. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life here, Israel, and be careful to, the, to obey so that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. Just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God. You'll know this bit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home And when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. This word of the law is intricately and literally involved with God's people. And then we move on to when they inherit the promised land. There's another one of the the memory verses that I had to to learn at college. Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that You may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So there's this big push for God's people to have this intricate relationship. And there's literal consequences if they don't do it. But they didn't do it, did they? Because we've read the book of Judges and we've read the book of the prophets. And we get to see in these stories the consequences of people who have, and I tried to think of a better expression than this, but couldn't come up with one, played fast and loose with God's word. It's, it must have been around all that time. It must have been in it, you know, from the moment they got into the promised land to the, through the exile and in the time of the judges when they were away from God. It must have been there. It must have been around. But they didn't give it its authority. Some statistics. Um, searching around on the internet. Um, Christianity Today, so I guess this is an American statistic. I don't know if that influences how you'll receive this. Up to you. 20% of American Christians read their Bible every day and 20% never. So one-fifth of American Christians never pick a Bible up. Interesting when we're thinking about God's Word. In Britain, so this was by the Evangelical Alliance, 16% of us, of God's people, read our Bibles every day and 33 never touch the Bible outside of church. A study by Barna said that 40% of Americans stopped reading the Bible because they were too busy. Just thought it's interesting. It's a bit of a sad state of affairs for, for our country. As one, I don't know how, what the percentage of people are Christians in our country. I think it's about 5 or 6%, which means about 1% of the people of this country are having a relationship with the Bible, which makes our country a country that en masse has turned its back on God's word. But I think even more worrying than that for me is the fact that as his people, we don't really have a great relationship with the Bible. If these stats are right, if a third of us never pick the Bible up, it's been a real challenge to me 
one of my big mistakes with the Bible is, and I think it comes with the territory of the job, is I, every time I read it, and my wife tells me off for this, every time I read it, I'm thinking about how to apply it to everybody else. I pick the Bible up, and I think, oh, that'd be good for so-and-so to hear that. It'd be good for so-and-so to hear that. Or I could use that in a sermon. You never, you know, that never stops. And I don't give God's word its authority in my life. Sometimes we pick it up, don't we? And we, it accompanies our morning coffee. We open it up, and we think, I want to read something encouraging. And we turn to the book of Psalms, and we read something quite vague about God's love. And we just kind of let it go about that far. And we think, oh, that's great. God loves me. I can put it down now. And even in that way... We don't really give God's word its authority. The children of Israel, I think, really have neglected God's word for a long time. And we see in this story that they are beginning a proud, stiff-necked people, arrogant, beginning to return back to God's word. God wants you to be obsessed. He wants you to talk about it nonstop. He wants it to be all that you really talk about to your kids at home with his word. He wants you to really, like, like you are with a box set. I've got, I've got friends who can just throw lines, big, long, big, long narratives about, about a film or a box set, and they can just throw them at me because, because, they, because they love this film or they love this box set. And with the Bible, we have to go away, don't we? And, and that's why we call them memory verses. We have to go away and really make a real effort to fall in love with God's word. It's a real challenge for us, I think. The people of Israel had fallen out of love with God's word. There's a real challenge for us, I think, to come under the authority of God's word again, to acknowledge the authority in our lives. And as I'm looking around, I'm seeing lots of little households. I'm seeing young mums and dads. I'm seeing families. I'm seeing people who are going to get married. It's a challenge for you. I was really fortunate. I grew up in a house with a worn-out Bible that my dad read all the time, whether and often I didn't really want him to read it, I wasn't interested at all, but God's word was where we started with our decisions. God's word was our frame of reference for what we were going to do with our careers and the way forward often. And me, my brother and my sister still ended up making a mess of things. It's a really good lesson, I think, for you young families. I would challenge you with this. Make the Bible the starting point of your decisions. So on the first day, verse 2, of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And I should just probably point out at this point, this is a bit of a new development. And so if you read about the assemblies, when they all gathered together, up until this point in the Bible, they were just men. So this is a bit of a, a breakthrough, perhaps, perhaps. All who were able to understand and read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. What I want you to just pick up here is kind of the two-way travel of, of the success of God's word here. To get to a point where, where it's useful and it's impactive, God's word reaches out to the people as it does it's proclaimed to the people, but, and I think crucially here, this word understand pops up three or four times. For it to be understood and it to be relevant and it to be useful, the people respond in a certain way. I want you to look for how the people respond. Verse 4, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform. God's word is given its place, built for the occasion. Beside him, at the right, stood Mathathiah, Shermer, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. 
And on his left were some other people with long names. Verse 5, Ezra opened up the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. And we come down to this verse, verse, I'm going to skip some names again, verse, verse 8. They read, this is the verse I want you to take home, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being said. So there's, the commentators say there's a couple of things going on here. I guess to imagine the scene, we've got 40,000 people and you've got Ezra reading out the, the law. I guess they didn't have the sound system that we've got now. 40,000 people aren't going to hear all that Ezra's saying. So the Levites, one of the things that could have been happening was the Levites are running around just reiterating what Ezra's saying because they would, they would know the law. Secondly, the language had changed a little bit in this time. The, the people had been away in exile and the language that the, the scriptures were written in in Hebrew, the, lang- the people were speaking a slightly different kind of Aramaic. So, so the job of the Levites could be some kind of translation job. But thirdly, and I think crucially what's, what's happening here is that the Levites were giving it a context and giving it a sense. It wasn't enough anymore for these people just to have God's word as something they could know about and reiterate. It was important that they could understand it so that it had some use for them today. So the people... God's word goes out to the people, and the people ask for it to be read. They gather together. They listen intent, in, attentively. So they were stood up for six hours. I, I can't stand up for six hours. I'm not, I'm not interested, probably shouldn't say this, in anything to stand up for six hours. These people stood up for six hours. You know, when you, when you see the national anthem sung out out of respect for the national anthem, you stand up. Well, these people, as God's word was read, they stood up, and they stayed stood up out of respect for the word for six hours soaking it in. They were parched. They were starving for God's word. And they weren't going to let this opportunity pass. Can you see what's happening here? A people who have ignored God's word, played fast and loose with it, come to a point where they're saying, we really need to get this now. This happens in, uh, in our culture today, doesn't it? Some, there's some scandal or or your, your favorite football team sells their best player. And spontaneously, the crowds just come around outside the stadium and say, we, we need to understand why this has happened. And then some poor guy with a clipboard has to come out and offer some explanation as to why this has happened. But you've got this friction of the people needing to know and the guy needing to explain it. That's the picture that we have of God's word. It wasn't okay anymore just to know that there was a guy who built an ark and a lot of animals went on it and not really know any more than that. Or that God's love and not know any more than that. It's important to give it a context so we can use it today. So that the guy who's really struggling with forgiveness reads his Bible and he, it's not okay that he just knows that this story is about forgiveness but he's got the sense of the meaning that God's word means that he actually needs to do something about this forgiveness issue that he's got so that it impacts our lives for now. We need to read it and we need to understand it. The Bible is not happy with just being an accompaniment to our morning coffee. It's not happy to sit on the side of our bookshelves that tries to show other people that we're thinking about the world in an intelligent fashion. It's not happy to do that. It wants to engage with our life. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be properly equipped for every good work. This book, 
this Bible, every single word of it, even, even the stuff in the hard-to-read parts of Leviticus, is engineered so that, so that your life is transformed into, into something more Christ-like. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law and the Levite, this is verse 9, some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Don't grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. It was a It was an awkward moment for God's people who have been away from his word for so long suddenly to start looking back and to see their story in the Torah, in the Old Testament and to see just how far they had gone away from God. And I guess they get this this honest, truthful reflection of their conduct. And in that honest, truthful reflection of their conduct they get reflected back to them as well the holiness and perfectness of God. God's perfection and their own mistakes and faithlessness. It can be a difficult thing as you get older to, to look in the mirror, can't it? Do you find that? Some, all you handsome ones are like, no, I've got no problem with looking in the mirror. And for me, increasingly, I caught myself out the other day. I was in, I was in a clothes shop and I just got, I was trying something on and it just, I didn't buy anything in the end. I looked at myself, I thought, I'm not, I'm not investing in this. <laughs> I'm not spending money on this. And, and, and then you end up coming to the mirror in a way that tries to make you look as good as you possibly can, don't you? And you even build up to it, you think, I'm not ready. You, you approach the mirror, you think, I'm not going to look at it just yet. I'm going to, what's my most, my best angle and my most handsome face? And you kind of, with a bit of fear, approach it like this. And then you look at yourself like that and then you think, no, nah, I'm not buying that. So we, when we do that, and I've seen people reject the mirror. I've seen people go, I'm not, I'm not happy with that mirror. I'm not happy with, with what that mirror is showing me. And God's word can be like that, can't it? The longer that we spend in it, the more clear, that, the more clearly we see ourselves in the narrative, the more clearly we see ourselves in the story, and the more consistently we're faced with the perfection of God. And we have to be challenged by how we respond to that. But that is not all that we see in the mirror God's word. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You don't need to mourn sin's victory. You don't need to remain eternally sad about your past wrongs. You don't need to live in constant fear of your enemies because we have a hope that operates outside of normal understanding. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That is the thing that you can take strength in. Not to say that opposition won't come. Not to say that life won't be impossible plausibly difficult but that within that your strength comes from a different source our strength does not rest in our past performance we don't need to remain sad or scared of how we look in the mirror because even though we may not look great as God sees us he sees us in Christ and that is our position of strength it's not dependent on how we look and our bad track record, it is dependent on the holiness of Christ and he's perfect. And so we stand okay. Last little bit. And I think, just to watch out here, God, God does something really interesting here. At the, at, at the, at the point where 
the people have spent 52 days building up, building up this secure um, city and, and, and have begun to plant it, inhabit it and build homes. God asks them to do from his word. And I think this is what happens when you look in God's word. Something really interesting. Look at what he asks them to do. It's really countercultural. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in Jerusalem. Go into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shades and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So, so the plan was, and I guess this comes at kind of harvest time, the seventh month, there's a, there's a collection of festivals, there's the Day of Atonement, which you go and you, and you spend time reflecting, I guess, on, on, on the sin in your life, and then there's the Feast of Trumpets, and then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, where they go out into the country, and as, as the harvest comes up, you bring back sticks, and you build a little, a little shelter, I guess, and I guess it's a reminder of how the people lived in the desert. And I guess the idea is that it reminds you of God's provision. So you build a little, a little hut of twigs on your roof. Can you imagine telling your, telling your teenage son that having, having moved from Persia where we had it nice, where it was a beautiful country and, and we had a good standard of living, we're going to move 900 miles, we're going to rebuild a city from the rubble, and then once we've got that city rebuilt from the rubble, I want you to go and live in a hut made out of twigs. Can you imagine the kind of reaction your teenage son's going to give you to that? He's like, I'm not living in... I'm not living in that. But God asks the people to do, very interestingly, I think, at the, at the point where the people would be starting to get a bit self-satisfied and, a, and start to take pride in what they've done. They've just built a city up in 52 days. Can you imagine, can you imagine particularly guys, you know, just bigging each other up? That's what guys do when they've built something, isn't it? Can you imagine the guys just saying, that was great work you did on the wall? That was awesome. You blow me away with what you did on that wall. We, you know, and can you imagine the sort of bigging up that's going on, the kind of pride that's going on? You've seen guys when they wash their car just take a step back and look at it for, for 20 minutes. Or a guy when he, when, he, when he builds some Ikea furniture disappears into a room just with one Allen key and, and he goes up, upstairs and even though there's, it's not great often and there's bits left over... He, he calls to his wife and says, come on, you need to see what I have created. I have only used an Allen key, and yet, before your eyes, I have created a sliding doored, beautifully crafted, retractable, mirrored wardrobe just for you. Look what I can do. And then, and then you disappear downstairs and you watch TV for three weeks, gloating in your brilliant creation. Such, so puffed up do you become with what you've done. It's been so easy, wouldn't it? At this point, at, at the point at which they've built this city, this wall, in 52 days to get puffed up and get self-important. And what does God's word ask them to do? Okay, now you've, now you've built the city. Now, now you've, it's, it's been a miracle. It's been amazing. What I want you to do now, the next logical step for me is that you build little sheds and you put them on your roof and you go and live in there. At the point... And I think this is interesting for us, living in the West, at the point where, they, where it was obvious where their strength was, God says to them, build some tabernacles, live in there, and remember where your strength really comes from. 
It's a timely intervention, I think, and it's really helpful for us in the West with all the, all the different things that we can draw our strength from. And we do do this, don't we? Our, our, our home and our family, we, we draw our strength from all different areas. And we've, we've got so much to be distracted by and to be puffed up about our own nice home and, and all that goes with it. And that's great. It's good. But I think God would say to us sometimes, I want you to remember where your provision comes from, even though you're working really hard even though you've got a nice house and that's good, even though your family's wonderful, I want you to remember that it's me who provides these things for you. I wonder if sitting in their shelters, looking out at the stars, feeling the chill of the wind, inhabiting the world of their ancestors, if they began to realise that the security that they have doesn't come from the walls that they built around themselves, it actually comes from God. Two things to remember, I think, from that story. The worldly security that we build, that we crave, it's only temporary. God's word that the people are thrown back to stands forever. And I think as well, as a reflection, sometimes the worldly security that we build can often make it harder for us to hear God's voice. The more strength that we, put, that we place on the things that we have, the harder it is for us to hear God's voice. Let's remember always that the, the joy of the Lord is our strength. By way of a conclusion, um, there's this lovely story at the end of Luke's gospel. Um, Jesus has been crucified and he's risen and he's appearing to disciples that are knocking about and, the, and, and, and all the disciples have fled. And, and they must have been wondering what on earth the plan was, what on earth was going on. And, and they're all, and two of them in particular, on their way to Emmaus, you might know this story, they were downcast and they were walking in a, in a sad way and they were anxious and they were worried and they weren't really sure where they were headed. And Jesus comes alongside them. It's a great lesson in pastoral care, one of the best lessons in pastoral care you read. And he doesn't, which is what I would do, I would be like, where, where were you? I told you I was going to get crucified and you all ran off scared. I would have been on it. I would have been after him. And Jesus doesn't do that. He walks unbelievably graciously and compassionately. He walks with them. And then, beautifully, he begins to open up the book with them again and show them again how it's all about him. He takes them back into the word. Doesn't condemn them. Doesn't even judge them. He just says, here's the word. Let's go back to the word. And he begins to show them all that had to happen concerning him, starting with the law prophets and then wonderfully the two disciples recognize who he is and they head back having fled from Jerusalem they head back and they carry on we've got a wonderful savior who in the middle of our apathy and ignorance of his word the way that we neglect it that we let it lie dustily on our shelves he doesn't condemn us instead he asks us to open up the book again open up our Bibles, and he gently explains to us that it's all about him. A challenge for you as you go. What's your relationship with God's word? And only really you can answer that. Do you, could you return to it? Could you give it its rightful place in your life? Could you start making your decisions, all of them, based on it? Could you, could you establish your family around it? Could you wrestle with the stories more so that you're not just satisfied that there's a nice story about a guy who built a boat? 
and, and, and really come to really want to understand this because you realize that without it, you're not going to get to know God as well. What would you do with his word?